ye are dead. We thus join with the Apostle Paul today to make the same stark and startling announcement that we read in Colossians 3 verse 3. Such an uncompromising statement must have left his readers in a state of amazement while they were reclining there, listening to his letter being read to them. Had they been listening carefully to his previous comments in chapter 2 and verse 20, they would have appreciated the point that the Apostle was striving to make. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? They were to be dead. Paul said, dead therefore to the world and all its influences, aspirations and worldly grandeur. In the same context, the Apostle therefore continues in verse 5 to encourage them to mortify therefore your members. Whilst we may be sure that Paul's hearers well understood his meaning, it does prompt us to consider today to what extent we have mortified the flesh, to kill off the natural desires of the Adamic natures that we all bear and to put on the nature of Christ Jesus if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The Apostle continues on this theme in a positive way by writing in the 24th verse, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The strength of Paul's argument here is brought out very forcefully in the New Revised Version, which reads, And to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Or perhaps also, as the New International Version gives us, And to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is a very challenging statement, that we should be creative according to the likeness of God. Being dead with Christ, we have to live in the likeness of God. And to do so, we need that power which only comes from his word of truth, carefully and prayerfully dedicating ourselves to the word of the Lord. We are reminded of the words in the opening chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. There is a difficulty with the phrase, by whom also he made the worlds, but a little investigation will show that the word world should properly be rendered as ages, which is in conformity with our understanding of the foreknowledge of God. Thus the diaglot reads, whom he appointed an heir of all things, on account of whom also the ages he made. And the basic Bible in English reads, to whom he has given all things for an heritage, and through whom he made the order of the generations. 
Those last words of the verse we quoted earlier from the New Revised Version sets the way in which we should live, namely according to the likeness of God. That is the pattern set us, and it is a lifetime struggle to achieve such a standard. We don't do this alone. As Paul has written in the chapter we referred to in the letter to the Ephesians, for we are members one of another. This is where we need the love, support and guidance of our fellow members. In the long dissertation that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ecclesia in Corinth regarding the relationship between the brethren and sisters, it covers 16 verses. He concludes his thoughts by writing this, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another and, when, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honoured, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. We are all the, body, the members of the body of Christ, and we must act like him. For that is how we too can be transformed into the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Opening the fifth chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul writes, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Almost all the modern translations strengthen those words by rendering the original as be imitators of God. That sets a very, very high standard for us to aim at how do we do it? Paul's words were the concluding thought from the previous chapter. They read, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let our relationship with one another achieve that same high standard in true Christ-like spirit. Following his exhortation to be followers of God, the Apostle sums up how we show forth the glory of God in our lives. He writes in the next verse, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Speaking of that offering and having in mind the words of the Apostle with which we started this exhortation, Ye are dead. I want to change my theme a little in order to bring these thoughts towards a conclusion as we prepare to remember our Lord in the breaking of bread. Reading Paul's words regarding being dead, our mind goes back to the comments made by the Apostle in the Epistle to the Romans in chapter 4 and verse 19, where we are informed concerning Abraham that being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, 
neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Both Abraham and Sarah were at an age that meant Sarah was incapable of giving birth to a baby. Both their powers to regenerate were dead. However, as we all know, through the power of God, and incidentally in the purpose of God, she did bring forth a son, Isaac. This thought somewhat parallels the words of Paul on deadness in his letter to the Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, where he says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but as with Sarah, so has the power of God worked in us also. As Paul continues, Hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses? In the outworking of the promise of God, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we recall the words of Genesis 22 and note the careful wording in the second verse. And he said, Take now thy son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall show you. This was to become the place where it is thought that David built an altar, and more significantly, where Solomon built that beautiful temple. And then, in demonstration of the foreknowledge of God, it was where his only son was crucified. Two more details we must not miss. It was about three and a half days' journey for Abraham, just as our Lord ministered to the people for three and a half years, as prophesied by Daniel. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Furthermore, let us not miss the fact that Isaac was by this time getting towards 20 years of age and able to resist. But he accepted the instructions given and must have learnt from Abraham the real intention when we read that Abraham bound his son Isaac, apparently without resistance. The apostle adds to these thoughts in Hebrews 11 verse 19 by saying that he was accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure which illustrates the confidence that Abraham had in the promises by God, and possibly by Isaac as well. The words of Abraham in response to Isaac's question are so significant of his faith. God will provide himself a lamb, and so he has. But let us follow this through. Our having noted the comment which is stressed in the Genesis account of the words, only son. It having been emphasised three times in that record, let us move to the New Testament and the miracles of Jesus, where we have the only New Testament occurrence of the words, only son. We find it in Luke 7 and verse 12. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. This was, according to John, the second miracle that Jesus performed, the first being the changing of water into wine. The significance of these two first miracles is apparent. 
The first describes the work of Christ in bringing in of the new covenant. We must remember the comment by the ruler of the feast. Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. We recall the words in the epistle to the Hebrews concerning Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh greater things than that of Abel. Then following this, we have the miracle of the raising of the only son of the widow woman. Both of these miracles are clearly showing the work of Jesus as the only son and his offering as a sacrifice, followed by his own resurrection. And thus we see the road to the cross deeply embedded in the scriptures, even as far back as Genesis. And so today we meet to be reminded again how that purpose was manifested and finally carried out in the complete acceptance by our Lord to a life dedicated to the will of God, a life that was to end in his crucifixion. Let us remember him now as we take to ourselves the bread and the wine in memory of that love as God gave his only son, the beloved son, in whom he was well pleased. May our God also be pleased with us as we endeavour to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour.